Welcome back, everyone, to the Risk Intel podcast, powered by SRA, where we share risk intelligence with experts across the banking industry. I'm your host, Ed Vincent, Executive Vice President at SRA. Welcome to the Risk Intel podcast. I'm Ed Vincent, and with me today from Davis Wright Tremaine are Alexandra Barrage and Ryan Richardson. Alex and Ryan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Uh, you guys have uh, crossed paths before your days at, at, at Davis Wright Tremaine, uh, working at the FDIC, uh, and I know you, you worked closely and consulted on the third-party uh, guidance proposal there that we're going to spend some time talking about here today. Uh, Alex, you're, you're a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine's uh, Washington, D.C. office and have significant experience working with uh, supervisory teams within the largest banks. Um, Ryan, you followed a little bit of a different path, uh, right, before joining the, the New, York, New York office of, of Davis Wright Tremaine, working on the fintech side, right, working uh, at Stripe as the, the lead partnership lawyer, uh, and have experience looking at this from, the, from that perspective inside of fintech itself. And I know that both of you work with the banks and fintechs today, and we're really excited to hear uh, a bit about that experience um, and, and your thoughts on what's going on in the market today. So thanks again for being with us. Let's let's jump right into it here. Right, we we've obviously have had a uh, an, an exciting set of developments here over the last couple of months in the uh, in the fintech space, to to say the least. So, can you kind of take us back here to to early June when the uh, the final guidance was released by the OCC, the Fed, and the FDIC, and give us some perspective on what what transpired in that period when the preliminary guidance was released, and you guys were doing some of your consulting work there. Um, and then the final guidance that came out. So, what was new? What what was eye opening there in that uh, in that in that set of guidance that, that came out in in in, uh, in June? And Alex, maybe you can start, and then Ryan, perhaps you know, coming on the back of that. Yeah, sure. Uh, look, I think it's great to start with kind of the the recent history of the guidance. I like that frame. And I would say, you know, several years ago, the guidance was put out for comment. Um, there was so much robust comment from all different parts of the fintech and other third-party um, you know, ecosystem, along with banks themselves, that the regulators had to actually extend the comment period. Um, that said, this proposal was kind of sitting out there for quite a while, I think probably more than two, two years. Folks were expecting it to be finalized uh, end of last year. It didn't happen. And so when it finally was issued uh, you know, a few weeks ago, or more than a month ago, actually. Um, in some ways, it was quite a big deal, right? Because it had been kind of out there for a while. She anticipated, respects, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, in other respects, it was not altogether different from what we saw in the original proposal. Um, some interesting kind of nuances in the final guidance were that um, you know the key points are the same. Banks are ultimately responsible for conducting their activities with a third party in a safe and sound manner, um, and the the agencies expect them to adopt risk management practices um, that are commensurate with the risk that these third party relationships pose. So uh, that that was all the same. Uh, OCC FAQs were basically incorporated in the final guidance, and one of the most important things about the guidance is. It's intended to be a one-stop shop. There aren't other guidances out there that folks need to read. This is really the kind of document that guides it going forward. 
Um, the specific focus on fintech partnerships or what the final guidance calls new and novel structures, I think is notable. Um, you know, just over the past, you know, five, 10 years, we've seen a proliferation of third party relationships, uh, and banks. And I know, um, that's something near and dear to Ryan, uh, and his work. The, um, the guidance is technically not a binding regulation. Uh, it does not have the force and effect of law. So the final guidance actually makes that very explicit. You know, that said, I think banks treat it as if it were binding, um, just like any other guidance document. Supervisors use the guidance as a basis for examination inquiries. Um, and so effectively, you know, the industry takes it quite seriously, as do, of course, the regulators. And I think the third point that stood out in terms of the original and the final was just the importance the guidance plays on the role of the board uh, of the bank. And so ultimately, you know, the final guidance talks about the responsibilities of boards of directors in terms of providing oversight over a bank's third party risk management, uh, providing guidance on, you know, acceptable risk appetite and making sure that the appropriate policies and procedures are established and implemented. So the role of the board in kind of overseeing all this activity, I think, is is something that stood out uh, when I did a compare between the two. Um, let me give it over to Ryan for his thoughts. Yeah, no, th th I think all of that's exactly right, Alex. And and I, uh, I mean, I, I think another um, sort of aspect of the final guidance that stood out to me by comparison to the to the proposed guidance was just a sort of additional emphasis in the language, honestly, section by section of the fact that this is a principles-based approach, right? And I think that was clear in the proposed guidance as well, but uh, there, there's a significant additional language added um, to sort of re-emphasize that point by point. Uh, and, and I think that also threads through some of the decisions that were made um, uh, with respect to incorporating some of the OCC FAQs, the, some of the some of the OCC FAQs that the um, that the agencies decided not to incorporate actually sort of were factual specific or industry specific, uh, and the, and the, it was clear to me at least uh, that one of the sort of themes that the agencies were going for and the in the FAQs that they did choose to incorporate were those that were principles based. So like they're really hammering that this is not. Uh, you know, this is not industry specific. This is not particular, like, you know, one type of relationship or another specific, but it is intended to be a set of principles to guide uh, evaluation and operation and risk management of third party relationships sort of enterprise wide. Uh, I, I, that I think is, uh, it, it's, you know, certainly understandable and reasonable approach. I think it, it is also understandably occasionally frustrating to those, uh, uh, those industry participants and commenters that were looking for Factual specific guidance on how you know how to uh, evaluate risk, act on risk in one particular set of facts or another. Uh, but the uh, but the the approach that the agencies ultimately took was to try to make this as flexible uh, as possible across like the broad range of types of third party relationships that banks may enter into, whether with vendors, fintechs, etc. Ryan, do, do you think that, that does that that concept of of making it a bit more principles-based, does that make it, uh, this is this might not be a fair question, but does that make it harder or easier on, on the bank or the, or the FinTech to, to, to figure out what to do now? Yeah, uh, I, I, I think it's both, right? I, I, and uh, I, I think it is, it's, uh, it's 
easier because you can always fall back on a set of principles, right? Like sort of fall back on first principles as you would in any, I think, critical decision making uh, in this area. So, you know, always being able to rely on a set of uniform, well-established principles as guides for your factual specific or fact specific decision making, uh, I think is it 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 is uh, it's simple and elegant, and I, and I think in a, in a really nice way. Uh, and it provides a clear anchor for decision makers on risk committees, on at, board, at the board of directors level, et cetera. Uh, it, it's sort of a common vocabulary and a common set of uh, criteria, if you will, um, to follow in any sort of risk-based decision making. That said, yeah, it, it, there is very little in way of any sort of factual specific guidance, right? And so it, what it means is that, that uh, banks, fintechs, uh, market participants across the spectrum are having to do their own work of applying these principles, right? Like actually sort of operationalizing them on a day-to-day -day basis. And that is challenging. Uh, but but uh, so, you know, it, it does present a certain set of challenges, but it also, uh, I, I think from the regulator's perspective, and I'm curious for Alex's view here too, uh, I think that simplicity and elegance is, is very appealing, right? That like you can sort of, you can use the same document to look at a cloud services vendor relationship as you would at a fintech relationship as you would at a like you know physical goods uh you know a relationship uh on a service provider basis so it, it is um sort of easier to uh to apply and to maintain from a regulatory perspective yeah so i agree with what uh ryan has said um i think the nuance for me is that while it is intentionally uh principles based um the, the potential frustration with that approach, as you said, Ryan, is just the vast universe of fintech uh, or third-party relationships, not just fintech yeah. uh, relationships. And, you know, the idea that like a consumer-facing fintech bank relationship could be, could raise very different risks from, let's say, a fintech relationship that's more like a, a software as a service tool. Like SRA, right? Like where there's a product that it's a bank is using for its own internal risk management. There's no consumer facing dimension to that. And I mean, there are other flavors, I'm sure, of like if you were to kind of heat map these different types of arrangements. So while being principles based can be helpful because you kind of have this like um, body of work around the different phases of the life cycle. Um, I, I still think that there is a general frustration on behalf of regulators that they're not really able to see under the hood as much as they might want to, uh, given the different risks that these different relationships could pose. And if not, well, if not risk managed, um, the concern that it, it could potentially lead to, to real harm. And we've seen that with certain consent orders that we've, that we've uh, reviewed just over the past year. So okay. will we, yeah. Yeah. No. Go, go, sorry. Finish the thought there. As I say, I I don't know that this is the end. This third party right. risk management guidance. We might see. We hope to see more around um, risk management guidance for community banks. Mm -hmm. Um. So that might be the next kind of phase of this work. But I I think the I think the general frustration is probably still out there. It's shared both by the industry, the banks, and probably also the regulators. Right. Well, will the regulators um, behave any differently now, though, that given that we, we've now moved from the preliminary to the final, um, you know, does 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 that indicate that a different type of behavior on their uh, on their part? 
So, I mean, I think in general, we're in a period now of a pretty intense regulatory scrutiny on these kinds of relationships. Not every relationship, um, but but certain ones, certainly the the new and novel fintech ones. I mean, that's yeah. straight out of the final guidance. Um, so in some respects, I'm not sure that it's altogether different because um, I think that the um, I think that the message has been very clear across a variety of speeches, even the cloud treasury report that came out in February, um, that risks are out there with these types of relationships and some banks are overly reliant on them. So to me, it's not like the final guidance is like this turning point. It's it's sort of a culmination of things that I think Ryan and I have seen over time in each of our practices. Um, but I think sorry. what's different, uh, sorry, one other point before I give it to Ryan, is that now the banks point to the final guidance and they tell their fintechs, I need X, Y, Z. And they they have this sort of maybe new gravitas around that because yeah. they have this guidance out there that says, you know, thou shall proceed in a risk-managed, safe and sound way. So that's pot- potentially something different that we didn't see before, Ryan. That, that was exactly it. Uh, you I, you, you, uh, you anticipated exactly what I was going to say. And I, I think in both in the exam context and just generally you're seeing the the agencies speak about this now in a manner that they would not speak about it while it was pending right and, and understandably that they that they would not speak about it while while the proposed guidance was out and, and comments were under review um sort of apart from a couple of speeches here and there but yes yeah, st- staff is now able to speak about it in a more definitive way uh but I, yeah i mean i think the the tenor of supervision in the context of exams was was already headed in this direction right. before the final guidance was uh, was finalized, uh, and uh, and so I, I have not observed like a like a pivot as uh, as as Alex rightly described it in terms of uh, in terms of um, like exams that were underway at you know dur- during the time that this was released that like all of a sudden that uh, we're working with an entirely new set of criteria that right. that, that hasn't been the case. Right. So it's been, as you said, you both said, it's been, it's been building gradually here, right? Market dynamics, right? The relationships that, you know, exist between the fintechs and the banks, right? And, and the, then the regulatory guidance as well, kind of all, all those things you know, progressing. Now, Alex, you mentioned the, right, some of the things that you guys have seen, whether it's the last few weeks or the last few months or over the last year, right? As, as the market has moved this direction, um, I'd be interested if and and understanding right that you have client confidentiality that that needs to be protected, but it would be be interesting to 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 hear um, any thoughts that perhaps Alex you have first, and then and then Ryan uh, maybe you have as well that um, you've seen go on between regulators and 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 the banks now, given that this guidance has been coming into focus, given that the market has been moving this direction, or are there. Are there any observations, right? You talked about, you know, consent orders there, right? Alex, perhaps share some of your observations that have come out of those those regulatory interactions that have been particularly notable. Yeah, sure. I'm gonna I'll talk about more the the bigger picture and the exam piece, and then maybe Ryan can touch on the enforcement piece, which has been uh, happening at a pretty steady clip. Um, yeah. You know, again, I think across the board, there has been much greater scrutiny on bank and fintech relationships through bank exams. Um, 
to some extent, all our bank clients have have touched this issue one way or another because they all have these partnerships in some way, shape or form. Um, the specific emphasis that I think I've seen in my practice is on BSA AML compliance and ensuring that the bank maintains sufficient ongoing oversight over its third party. So for example, we have multiple examples where as a technical matter, the bank is the financial institution for BSA AML compliance purposes. But many banks outsource um, some of that function to their third party. And in theory, they have very clear delineations of roles and responsibilities, including, for example, the filing of SARS, which is sometimes done by a third party. Sometimes it's retained by the bank. And so each relationship has kind of like a a different um, sort of calibration of responsibilities. And oftentimes when those responsibilities are not clearly defined, you see cracks and you see gaps. And those gaps can lead to, to real significant issues without the appropriate oversight and the appropriate risk management and communication, et cetera. So if I had to pick one topic uh, where I've seen the most focus, it's on BSA AML compliance, and that covers quite a range, everything from customer due diligence um, and, and things like that. So uh, I've, I, I think I've also, you know, generally seen this oversight issue come up uh, almost every time in a bank exam or when a bank is speaking to its fintech. So those are the themes that I think are, have been most prominent. Ryan, what, what are you seeing? I, th- I think that's exactly right. And, and, and I think then a, a related thread that you see through many of the public enforcement mm-hmm. and consent orders has to do with sort of the 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 sort of day-to-day mechanics of that of that oversight. And in particular, like what does monitoring actually look like in in uh, in this context with respect to any function, including BSA AML? Uh and so like, you know, is that uh is you know sort of and I think the contract uh, that governs a relationship, a third-party relationship with a fintech in, uh, included, can actually lay out the role. The, the roles can be muddy, or the roles can be clear. Even, even when they're clear, uh, if the if sort of the information that's being delivered to a bank on a daily basis or periodic, you know, daily, weekly, quarterly, whatever, uh, is is not being then digested by that bank in a way that actually allows them to get a clear picture of the risk presented by the relationship, identify potential enhanced risks or even deficiencies on a regular basis, and then try to remediate those in a, in a way that is sort of prompt and effective, then like the, the, the rights in the contract are sort of useless, right? Like the, the contract only gets you so far. Uh, and then I think what we, yeah what we've seen in, in many of the uh, public enforcement actions is also you may have been like sort of getting a like a data dump on but even a daily basis weekly period you know quarterly whatever else but what were you doing with that information and and, and how are you digesting it what technology do you have in place to digest it or is it a manual process or something in between uh, so I I think one one additional thread yeah one additional thread we've seen through the the, the enforcement context is just all around. Uh, monitoring and act, action on that monitoring. Uh, and I, I do agree with Alex uh, 100% that a, a particular focus of that is in the AML space. I think you you know, you know you see a, a little bit of it as well in the fair lending space, uh, in uh, sort yeah. of credit risk, credit risk generally, 
Um, so it, it is it uh, AML uh, and you know KYC et cetera have been a, a hot button for sure. But but it, I think that that uh, monitoring piece threads across all different functional and risk areas. Right, and the, you know the guidance right was very clear that that the buck stops with the bank, right? And so right, Alex, as you said before, you may choose to have your third party uh, partner perform some of those functions. But ultimately, you need to have the controls, the checks, the balances, the oversight, right? The monitoring, uh, and and the bank, and the bank has to ensure and 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 is accountable for those those things being in place. And it it you know from the fact that we do see these enforcement actions, clearly that that message has not been universally grasped yet. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's still some more work to do, seemingly from an education perspective, to remind and reinforce that and, 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 and drive that message home to the banks that, that, um, you know, the arm's length relationship doesn't mean that, that, you know, that you can pass the buck in terms of accountability and responsibility there. Yeah. And I think, you know, speaking of arm's length relationships, we recently saw the American express order where the OCC said that the bank's affiliate, which is basically their, their travel services company, that they didn't implement appropriate controls and mechanisms for tracking complaints, for example. So we shouldn't forget that it's not just the bank itself, the insured depository institution that could fall under this um, potential enforcement. It's actually affiliates of the bank. And um, so when we talk about monitoring and oversight, we really are talking about any, um, any operating entity within that broader banking institution um, as, a, as a potential focus. Thank you for joining us today for this insightful discussion. The conversation with Alex and Ryan will continue in part two coming next week, where we'll dive into how banks can best comply with these regulations. For more information on SRA, please visit srarisk.com. Watch or listen to our weekly Risk Intel podcast series or follow us on LinkedIn to learn more.